Welcome to Squeamish, the podcast that awakens your social sensibilities. Each episode, I have stimulating and organic roundtable conversations with guests about social commentary issues. Whether it's pop culture and media or social justice, I have got you covered. Today, we will be discussing the business of risk-taking. We will be learning what it takes to be an entrepreneur during these uncertain times. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are talking about the business of risk-taking and we have a very special guest, Sean Brannigan, and he's going to talk to you about everything that has to do with entrepreneurship, the industry, and just what you need to know if you're interested in going into this direction. So thank you for being on the show, uh, Professor Brannigan, also known oh, as Sean. Oh, you got to call me just Sean. Glory, great to, great to be on. Thanks for having me on. It's yes. so good to hear your voice. You have such a good voice. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so um, I just want to know a little bit about you. Um, You know, I know that I know a little bit, but I think that the world needs to know a lot about you. So tell me about yourself and how did you get here? Uh, Well, I went to the Newhouse School at Syracuse University, studied magazine journalism. I went there in the wake of Watergate is what I like to call. I thought, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a journalist after all this Watergate work occurred. And there apparently was quite a surge of uh, applicants and students that went into journalism. By the time I was in the fourth year, I'd done a bunch of things as a student journalist. I tried it out, thought, you know, I don't think this is right for me. So I went into, started a business in typesetting, bad industry, uh, but a great learning experience. After four years, it failed. Uh, I ended up taking a job for a short amount of time, but I was hooked on this entrepreneurship stuff. I uh, got into a little thing called the internet, which was a great move on my part. Um, uh, sort of what is, uh, probably one of my superpowers is that I kind of sniff out stuff a little bit ahead of time. Not always what, right, but that, that, what's that? What year was that? Uh, 1990. So mm, 1990, okay. I started a business where we were working. I used to call it the, uh, the information dirt road cause there wasn't a high speed internet yet. Um, mm-hmm. and then by 93, we were in the right place, right time. Uh, we were doing work, built some of the earliest websites ever, was doing search engine optimization before there was a Google. Uh, we were doing interactive marketing before it was called that. Uh, and I uh, ran that business uh, that, that we started, ran that until we sold it in 1999, December 1999, which is great timing. We sold it to a uh, publicly traded company uh, and they were rolling up Internet businesses uh, we were kind of concerned that things were a little wacky and mm-hmm. we were right. Uh, that company went into bankruptcy 21 months later. Um, and, um, then it was acquired out of bankruptcy by a couple of really rich people, uh, who recognized that yes, this internet's going to happen, but not happen in 45 minutes. It's going to take a little bit of a while. So it's good to have a bill to be a billionaire and you can just wait for, wait for the, uh, the uptake. And sure enough, we bought a whole bunch of different companies uh, in the internet services business uh, from 2001 to 2004, uh, built it to a $125 million company. I was running the marketing through most of that. Um, yeah. And they fired me <laughs> because oh I'm an entrepreneur inside of an organization that's becoming big and 
organized and bureaucratic and that's not like where I belong. So they were right to fire me. I hated it, but, um, and we were right why they fired us. They were wrong. Uh, they wanted to acquire another company and we were saying it's 2004. We think the market had changed. Um, uh, they fired us on a Friday, our whole marketing department. And on a Saturday, we spun up, uh, a technology marketing business. Um, and I invited most of those people that were in my marketing team and, uh, for the next six to eight years, we did, uh, tech marketing with really fast growing, smallish, uh, very dweeby, techy, techy, uh, companies and how to bring their products to market and make them understandable. Did that and I've done a couple other things. We did a search and social media company for a few years. It, it did okay. It didn't do great. Um, and then we ended up folding it. Um, it didn't fail. It's just, it wasn't going to grow to the level we wanted. So we, we uh, folded up, and then the most most recent one is um, just launched a. Uh, actually, this by the time you put this out, it will be official. Scrappy Capital is a uh, a seed investment fund um, mm. that we invest in uh, seed startups in rising tech cities. So we don't invest in Silicon Valley or Boston or New York or L.A., but instead we invest in companies, new really early, early, early companies in Atlanta and Austin and. Nashville and Chattanooga and Cincinnati and St. Louis, places like that, where there's mm-hmm. uh, new technology happening and changing business. But now I teach, uh, as you know, I teach media entrepreneurship. So I focus particularly on media, uh, mm-hmm. but entrepreneurship uh, in the media space to at the Newhouse School. So I'm back at my alma mater teaching that and people like you and uh, others that we've had through the program. And I've been doing that for this is the longest I've been employed like nine years, almost 10. Yeah, you've definitely made an impact at Syracuse University. So thank you for that. Um, Did you envision yourself where you are now? And I know you mentioned that you failed earlier. How did you bounce back from that? Like, how did you, you know, utilize that uh, moment of failure and redirect your energy? Okay, I'll answer the envision question in in a second, but I'll own up that I did not take the failure well at all. I was angry. I was mad at my partners. I did a few things that were, um, I regret that I did. Um, Mm -hmm. Nothing illegal or that I'm, you know, anybody was irreparably damaged. Uh, But I was, I was mad and I was going to show everybody how mad I was. And Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time being mad until, until somebody said to me, um, the way you are being mad is like taking poison and hoping the other guy dies. It only affects your life. You're the one who's mad. You're the one who's, you know, um, seething and they're going on in their life. I mean, occasionally I interact with them and probably make them uncomfortable, but I'm uncomfortable all the time because yeah. I'm mad. And yeah. they said, you just need to get over it. And those, that, those words really hung with me for a while. And finally, finally, I shook it. I think I've, it changed me a lot to be that mad and to be you know, unable to just get out of it. I just was I just they I felt like it was their fault. And it was because um, I actually got pushed out and then the business mm-hmm. failed a year later, yeah. which then made me happy. I mean, yeah, that's just so mean and vindictive. And yeah, I got that in me. I get that. And I'm OK with that. 
I just don't want to be that person. If I can make a choice, yeah. I didn't want to be that person. So did, did I handle it well? No, I didn't. Um, but by not handling it well and then realizing how badly I'm handling it, I think I've gotten pretty good at, at that. Not really good. I don't like losing. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't like failure really, but I can, you can recraft it in your head. And, um, and I think I've gotten pretty good at that. And I think I, because I was so awful at it, I'm probably pretty good at telling other people who are having a hard time mm-hmm. with it because yeah. I can relate to them. Like, I know mm-hmm. it sucks to lose, but you can't win a ball game unless you risk losing. Exactly. And, uh, like I watched NBA last night and two buzzer ending games where one team loses. But if one little thing had gone differently, it would have been a switch. And yeah. that's how life is. Sometimes it's like, okay, I need to... This feels awful. You know, it was Chris Paul, I think, was in, in tears. It's like he's a 36 year old man who's yeah. realizing, OK, his time in the NBA in the NBA game is is ticking by and um, it's tough to lose. To your yeah. question, of, did I envision where I am right now? Mm-hmm. Um, yes and no. The yes part is I've always been fascinated with teaching. My wife's a teacher. And I've always said to her, I really think I should have been a teacher. I could have gotten into teaching high school. She hates the idea of teaching high school. She teaches younger kids. And um, she, had, I said, no, I think I kind of take that as a challenge. Like, I, I, I kind of like the idea of it being a little edgy and, you know, they're mm-hmm. going to talk back. And I like that. And um, so I'd always said things like that. I also did a fair amount of lecturing, like, uh, sort of would find my way to speak to a business class or a communications class about some things that I did. I sought that out uh, and mm-hmm. liked it. I always came away going, that was thrilling. I love that. Uh, that was, mm-hmm. oh, I should have done this instead of that. So it was kind of like I was getting my reps, uh, getting a little yeah. bit of practice. Would I have envisioned I'm doing what it is I'm doing inside the Newhouse School? No, I didn't have this as a clear vision. Um, yeah, but it makes a lot of sense where I am uh, based on what I've been doing. So, yeah, it seems like life is sometimes it's like you don't even you imagine it going one way and it just redirects you and like says, nope, you're not doing that. <laughs> um, it's like but, I think we do this thing. We over we oversimplify how complex life is. And we say, oh, you got to make the dots connect. No, no, you don't. <laughs> you yeah. don't. You know, okay. in fact. I think it's we look backwards and then it all makes sense. And that means it didn't make sense. Look, let's just be honest. You know, it's like, oh, see, it all made sense. Yeah. No, not looking forward, looking backwards. It made sense because I'm here mm-hmm. uh, and therefore I'm here because of this and this and this. And some of that stuff happened by accident. Some of it was intentional, but intending something else. Uh hope so. No, I didn't envision this truly, uh, but elements mm-hmm. of it. Uh, were always pretty prominent with me. Um, mm. so. um, you mentioned risk taking or just, you know, the, the, the beauty or the interest of risk. So where has risk taking taken you? What was the, um, riskiest business deal that you had to do? I don't know. I, I, I'm gonna, and you know, this is one of my things, which is everybody thinks entrepreneurs are risk takers and I don't think they are. I think they're risk managers. They just don't, they are not risk avoiders. So when something's risky, they'll step really close to the edge of it. They won't take the risk generally. Good entrepreneurs 
don't take risks like that. They break them down. They're saying, well, how can I see if this is a really big risk? It looks like it from here. Well, I'm just going to get closer. Or I'm going to mm-hmm. only do it for this amount of time. Or I'm going to only risk this amount. And when I get to that point, whether it's money or time or, you know, um, attention, then I'm going to stop. Because if yeah. I don't, if I haven't learned that, no, this isn't as risky as it appeared, then it is risky and I should get out and I should back out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and invariably, I think the things that we see as high risk, like, oh, you're going to quit your job and you're going to start this thing. That sounds so risky. Yeah. But somebody I've been in those rooms when that company I was talking about was going into bankruptcy and we were writing names of people on sheets of paper. And then we did layoffs and some of those people whose names were on those on those lists didn't get laid off, but they don't know they almost did. Mm. And I think the whole idea of somebody else having charge of whether you keep that job or not is a I think it's a false sense of security that people have with that jobs are secure. I don't think jobs are secure. I actually think the opposite. I think. When you're running your own business, you're seeing it's going out of business. You Mm -hmm. see that it doesn't make revenue like it did last year. And that might make you feel uncomfortable, but I would rather have that and be driving my own ship or boat or car Mm -hmm. or whatever metaphor you want to use, because then I can adjust. But when it's business and I have a job, most people are going, well, I did my job. And that what they don't realize is that the value of that job, sadly, has gone down. The market value of it or the need for it uh, or there's automation that replaces what that person was doing. And they feel like, oh, it's safe if I just keep doing the thing I'm doing. Mm -hmm. We're in a a changing world. And entrepreneurs are more equipped. And that's part of why I teach is that even if you don't go into your own venture, if you think more like an entrepreneur, you want to know how the how the organization, you know, stays afloat financially. You should understand how that business model works, not you have to know how to run finance or, Mm -hmm. you know, or operations for the whole organization. But you should know who your customers are. Where's that as a market? Is it growing? Is it settled down and it's plateaued? Is it is it decreasing? And if you're not paying attention to that, you actually are in a job where your security has gone down significantly because you don't know the marketability of that job. You're just doing the work that's in front of you. And that's admirable. Anyway, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so on the risk, what's the riskiest thing I've done? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm probably not a whole lot of risky stuff. I've done little little areas that are sort of modest risk and then I do another piece of it and another piece. And and if you were to add them all up and say, Oh yeah, that was a big risk. Yeah. But I didn't do it as a big risk. I did it in little chunks that made it a very, uh, like, you know, I do affordable loss. Yeah. I could survive that. But the number one reason, the number one risk people think is usually inside of you like, Oh, but it may fail. Okay. Yeah. Anything may fail, you know. You know, this is this is the risk that's called life. In my is kind of how I I look at this stuff. Like mm-hmm. the risk of not doing it is greater than the risk of failing at doing it. 
You know, you one of those lines is from sports. You miss every shot you don't take. Um, so take shots. Yeah, definitely. Where do you get your inspiration for your business ventures from? Oh, everywhere and nowhere. Um, we're all in. I mean, business is satisfying a need and then assessing needs is what entrepreneurs start to do. Is that a like I always say, is it a problem? And people say, oh, it's yeah, it's a huge problem. It's so inconvenient. And it's okay. Is it a mosquito bite problem or is it a shark bite problem? Because if it's a shark bite, people will do anything to avoid it, right? Because it can mm-hmm. kill you or maim you or – sorry to use the metaphor, but you get the idea. Yeah. But a mosquito bite, eh, you know, yeah, I could put a stuff on, but I'm lazy and I don't want to get up and go get it. I mean, then, yes, there's a market, but it's not a market need that pulls something into the market. A shark mm-hmm. bite is being pulled into the market. Oh, you've solved this problem I didn't realize I had? Um, the, you know, if somebody were to find the cure for cancer, mm-hmm. you're not going to have to be an amazing marketer to let people know, oh, I have cancer. I want the cure. Okay. Thank you. Please stand in that line over there. And, mm-hmm. and if you're, if you're selling the cure to another problem and I first have to explain to you the problem, that's more nuanced mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. um, and therefore has more market risk. Because you can describe the problem and the market or the target of that market might say, huh, wow, thanks. Now I know that's a problem, I guess, but I'm fine because they were fine before. Um, Most people don't realize that, oh, yeah, but this is so much better. And let me tell you why it is. Okay, I I was fine. You know, now that you've told me it's a problem, I might be looking at it. Maybe three to five years from now, I'll be annoyed by it more and I will become a customer. So what, you're going to have to wait three to five years. That's a Mm -hmm. bad business model, right? So I always, um, I always look at what's going on and try to figure out where is a gap and then assess if that gap is a true opportunity or if I'm just deluding myself. Mm -hmm. And that article I was telling you about, which you can put as a reference maybe here to the podcast is, talking about that we fall in love with it's the idea it's not the idea the idea yeah. is worthless it's about what you do about the problem you've identified in that idea and how you execute and that's how you win so what do you need to have to start a business like or to be an entrepreneur like what are the 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 key pillars of being an entrepreneur well it depends on the kind of business so if you're saying oh i'm going to start a business in pharmaceuticals okay you're going to need to have a lot of money because R&D costs a lot of money there, research and development to, to create a new pharmaceutical. Uh, and if you're going to manufacturing, you're going to need money to manufacture. And you probably have to have like letters after your name, PhD or, you know, amazing scientist or something. Right. Uh, but there are lots and lots of businesses. And that's the reason I'm in media as uh, one of my friends and colleagues, um, Gianna Whitver said is, Media entrepreneurship is probably the most accessible entrepreneurship. If you can Mm -hmm. tell a story or take a photo or film a thing, and these days even the technologies to do that are much more accessible, not to everybody, but to a lot of a lot more people. Um, As we're with this podcasting is is growing because it's uh, about conversations. We're all you know human beings. We've we've learned how to do this since we were little kids. 
how to converse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the tools to do that are becoming more and more accessible and less expensive. And therefore, it opens up who can do this. So to me, can you be an entrepreneur? Yeah. In what industry, like manufacturing, you're going to have to have capital and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're in something like like a media company, like what you've got, you not so much. It's about creativity and just working it. And um, yeah, so the work of Sarah Saravathy uh, in a term, the official term is called effectuation, but it is really how entrepreneurs think. And um, it's those those are the five pillars that I will, you know, I won't take credit for. It's her work. But I absolutely when I read her work, um, I felt like it was a support group for people with my terrible entrepreneurship disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we uh, the point was, is that you start with your means. You don't start with, oh, if I only had. OK, then you're never going to launch. You're going to always have something else that you need in order to launch. You start with what you have. And the mm-hmm. basics of what you have is who am I? Like, what am I really, really good at? And don't delude yourself. Um, who do I know? Because I augment and, and, and expand and, and get even better with others, right? Businesses, entrepreneurs are, are a lot of times a lonely group, but they almost always have a team around them that are working. And mm-hmm. it's not a team who works for you. It's a team that works with you. They're mm-hmm. co-founders. That that um, it, the best the best teams are they offset your weaknesses. They're really good at the thing you're really terrible at. And um, so who do I know? And then who do they know? Because they may not be able to help me because they're, you know, their situation is they're already working for something else or they're already in another startup. Uh, and oh, but I know somebody who'd be great. And they mm-hmm. generally that's how you get started is they. You know, you start with your means. The other mm-hmm. one is like we talked about with risk is you break it down and you don't take big risks. I like to say that no entrepreneur worth their salt would ever say you need to spend money to make money. Does that have some truth to it? Yes, from time to time. But most entrepreneurs, if that's the case, then that's saying you just spend money because you have to. You convince yourself you have to. You really don't have to mm-hmm. do it with the cheap version of and you yeah but it's not as good i wish i had a better okay great work until you can afford that don't just go spend the money and think oh because i spent the money the universe owes me that money back no it doesn't uh you just spent the money let's be honest so only take on affordable loss so assess truthfully what does failure look like Mm -hmm. and how can i mitigate that failure the third one is is to have is to leverage contingencies. Bad things are going to happen. It's the nature of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, sometimes the wisdom is in the mistake. And this seems awfully easy when people hear about it as case studies, like, oh, Airbnb, they really believed it was about air mattresses. And um, <laughs> it's not about air mattresses, right? But that was the error to their objective, but it got them into the market to realize, wow, it's not about air mattresses at all. It's about people who have apartments or houses where their kids are grown up and they have extra space or they're, uh, they have a consulting job where they don't live in this amazing apartment for six months out of the year and it, they could be making revenue off of it or 
any number of other things that they weren't thinking at the beginning of Airbnb because they were beginning with their point of view, which is they were sleeping on an air mattress at their friend's apartment. And do you see where I'm going is, is that they were wrong. And if they had said, no, we're going to be, we're going to become the number one sales, uh, uh, you know, marketplace for air mattresses, mm-hmm. we never would have heard of them. They wouldn't be industry changing. Instead, they got into this tiny little weird market of maybe they would be selling air mattresses or you are encouraged to use an air mattress to rent out your apartment in in uh, big cities like San Francisco and New York. And in fact, because they did that, the error was, no, nobody cares about air mattresses, but they, mm-hmm. but this idea of renting my apartment, the whole apartment was what they were more interested in. Yeah. And that's leveraging a contingency. That one's not that awful. There's other ones where you're off working on selling something or you're promoting this service and the customer asks you, do you do this? And you're saying no. And then you're in the next meeting and the customer, next customer is asking you nearly the same question. And you're saying, no, this is where you have to be an entrepreneur and say, tell me more about that. What is, what is it that you, because they think you're going to provide this other service that they really want. And you never even thought of it. Mm-hmm. So the market is telling you, and that's leveraging contingencies, which leads to the fourth one. The fourth one is co-create and partner. And this is more than just getting people in a team. This is going to your customer and letting the customer shape the idea, which sounds mm-hmm. opposite of what we have as the mythology of entrepreneurs. Oh, they saw the future and they built a product that was perfect. Eh, wrong. They they usually just put the crappy product out into the marketplace and the market says, well, why doesn't it do this? And that's how the market then your customer, the people who really matter are shaping it to be thing, the thing they want. And that's yeah. co- that's co-creating and partnering with them. And the last one is, is that instead of waiting around for activity, entrepreneurs are, well, I don't know everything and there's a whole lot I don't know, but I'm going to do this anyway. Action creates opportunity is kind of the, the tag that I use there. And they take action, even though they're not sure and we don't know this. Yep. But yeah. Thursday we're doing it anyway. We'll, we'll know more by Thursday afternoon and we'll yeah. know a whole lot more by Friday and we may even completely change the business by the following Monday. That's what entrepreneurs do. They just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Occasionally they have to put it down. Like I told you, sometimes you have to say, oh, yeah, uh, working. So that's hard. Yeah. That is hard. Um, how do you, um, utilize, you know, marketing and social media? How do you spot trends, especially given the fact that we're living in very uncertain times, but also new things pop up, you know, every other day now. So how do you say, um, like, how do you stay relevant? I, can, I try to, I try to look at different kinds of publications all the time. I mean, I teach this stuff. So there are certain, certain publications and things that I, I'm going to say I ingest like, um, media news and, um, uh, technology news and what's going on in the tech world, like the, the major tech players. I follow all that. So that's my, that's my bread and butter go to, but I'll look at publications that are really outside of my norm all the time. Uh, part of the reason that I do that is if I'm only looking at the same stuff, I'm going to have boring ideas. 
Mm-hmm. I need I need to be looking at things like watch my you may hear them in my in the background or my grandkids are over and um, they're on uh, my granddaughter's upstairs. She's eight. And uh, <laughs> if you hear any chatter, I don't know if you hear that on the line, but she is. I'm pretty sure talking to Charlize, mm-hmm. who she gets on her iPad. They talk forever. They're like right in front of each other. Uh, this is their world. And what a great way to look at what is the future going to be. It's going to look a little like that. They're totally at home with it. Charlize is down in Long Island and, um, and Roxy, my granddaughter is here in upstate New York and they're just talking like they're in their bedrooms at home and wherever they are, they are. So I look at that kind of stuff too. So I don't just look at what's printed. I look at what I look at behaviors, your your, um, environment. Mm hmm. Looking at behaviors, especially of people that are not like me, like younger or, you know, in a different background or different situations. What advice would you have for people who are in their 20s and 30s but and they want to start a business? You know, like they don't they they're just starting out. Stop talking and start doing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times people say, oh, I have this idea and they tell you, tell you, tell you. And okay, everybody has an idea. Ideas are worthless. They, um, what makes an idea into something of value is execution. And the first one is you getting out of your own way and just go do it. Like someone says, well, I want to do this thing, but I haven't figured out how to do it. Okay. Well, you know, why don't you just figure it out this afternoon and launch it tomorrow morning? Oh man. Yeah. Just make yourself do it and yeah. don't be afraid that it, oh, but it's not perfect. Yeah. Well, guess what? It's not going to be. Yeah. And if anybody dares to say, well, a very successful business has to begin cor- correctly and da, 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 go look at the way back, uh, the way back machine. I think it's at archive.org and you can look at websites from long ago and go look at the Google website, which was laughable. Look <laughs> at Amazon, which is not just laughable. You'll double over laughing. It was awful. Yeah. Um, and then look at like even today, look at her Craigslist. I like to refer to Craig Newmark as an accidental billionaire. He wasn't building a big business. He just wanted to help people. And I don't want to draw him up as this unbelievably helpful person, like, and that's all he cared about. No, he was running an organization and he is a good person, I think. Uh, but he, because he focused on that, that was the service. And if you look mm-hmm. at the site, it looked like crap. And, it, and anybody today would have said, well, don't launch that. That looks terrible. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't about whether it looks this or that. It's about does it serve a need? And uh, we kind of miss that kind of stuff. So I would say someone who's 30 or 20 or 30 who's thinking about starting something, start now. Um, yeah. We we tend to say, oh, well, I'll be smarter and I'll know more people and I'll have more resources later. Okay, well, when will that not be case? I'm 62 years old. I'm sure I will know more people when I'm 70. Yeah. So that's when I'm going to start a business. <laughs> that would make no sense, right? So start it now. Yeah. And, uh, I'll know more when I'm 70. Okay, great. I hope you do, Sean. <laughs> but I know enough. Even if I know very little, I'll know more by starting it than I will by by waiting. And so I'd say I'd encourage encourage younger people to start. Is uh, there are so many technologies and platforms that allow that have broken down barriers to starting ventures. 
in terms of like setting up a team, you know, in order to run a business, you do, I think you do need a team. How do you choose the right people and how many people should you have on your team, especially if you're just starting out um, before you expand? Well, I, I guess I would say first is don't wait for the team. And I'm going to tell you the team actually chooses you. That's that's um, when you have a concept and it's so invigorating, it's really more about that you have brought a concept or a problem or a solution to life. And then the team will find you because mm-hmm. you will run into somebody else who's working on a similar problem. And even though you're thinking, oh, they're working on theirs, I'm, I don't want to tell them about my, I encourage people to do the opposite. Tell them everything because they mm-hmm. might say, and I just got off the phone with um, a founder of a company in Phoenix who was reluctantly working with somebody who had a, who had had a company like this, uh, year or two earlier and felt like, wow, but they may take my idea or whatever, whatever. I'm like, do you trust the person? Yes, I do. They seem like a good person. Well, she was just calling me to say, I think they're going to become our partner and invest and bring the stuff they were working on a year and a half ago because they loved it and it, and they are a more seasoned entrepreneur and they, anyway, teams find each other in a, and from momentum. And because the founder, the original founder, um, has been able to articulate the problem with a passion and, and an interest level that is, in, you know, just brings out, it brings out the, uh, man, I want to, I want to work on this Rocky. with you. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. It's, it's mag, it's a mag, uh, magnetic force of, of some sort. It's really hard to explain. And I've had people, students come and startups saying, I need a team member. Where do I go to find them? I'm like, uh, everywhere. <laughs> go out of your zone. Go to, mm-hmm. you know, go to certain places where there are people who are looking for, it's kind of like dating. You're like, don't go to places where everybody's all paired up. You know, that wouldn't be a good place to go mm-hmm. try to get dating. But, but then also don't just go to classic dating places. Like go to the grocery store where everybody is. And um, so the same here, it's like go to certain places like hackathons and uh, startup weekends, because these are people who are at least saying, hey, I might want to get into a startup. And that one who stands up and says, here's this idea I'm working on. I don't have a team or I'm, you know, I'm looking to work with some people here on this weekend. No, no commitment, just just for the weekend. And um, let's see what happens. And that's a lot of times when you find somebody says, Wow, I love that idea. Or mm-hmm. I don't know anything about that idea, but or or that concept or that problem. But I really like their passion. I'm I'd love to at least spend the weekend to find out what else they're doing. And the next thing yeah. is you have a teammate who's you know shoulder to shoulder with you. Um, exactly. Yeah. That's how I would get a team is is just keep going outside your normal circles and talk about your your venture. Uh, A big mistake that early entrepreneurs do is they keep it a secret. And Mm -hmm. um, that's a huge mistake because secrets can't succeed. Yeah, they just can't. Yeah. I have a Um, secret. Do you want to help me? (laughs) No, I don't. I've done that before, too. I've been like, yeah, I have this great idea for a business. And, like, they're like, okay, what is it? I was like, I can't tell you because, you know, like, because you you feel like they're going to steal it. Like, great. Let's t- treat me like I'm, I'm ready to steal your idea and then see if you want me to be your business partner. 
Yeah. How, how is that not thought out, right? Yeah, and it's so funny because the idea that I had that I kept a secret, someone else ended up um, my um, my supervisor was like, yeah, um, someone has that idea already. Like they posted on Facebook, and I was like, oh, okay, uh, that's great. Yeah, um, you know, it's like great <laughs> if there's four other people out there working on this, then great. One of us has a shot at making it. Mm-hmm. Get in yeah. the game. If it's like, oh, I need to be the first. There's all sorts of mythology that first mover advantage. It, first mm-hmm. mover advantage is not an advantage. Would you want to be Facebook or MySpace or Friendster? Ooh. Those were first. Friendster, yeah. MySpace. And they didn't succeed. I mean, they did pretty well. They would, they succeeded by, based on most standards, but not as much as Facebook did in terms of yeah. dollars and growth and everything. Um, anyway. So, um, yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a believer in just just jump in, just start. Just do it. Yeah. Just do the damn thing. <laughs> yeah. So when is the right time to expand your business outside of your comfort zone? Like once you like when is the right time once you've like solidify like, OK, I have a business. It's doing well when um, maybe I should open up another office or, you know. How do you well, know? this is what I can give you as a as a personal thing is I'm an instigator. I now call myself that. I remember my mom. She's my my dear ma is gone. Uh, she used to call me an instigator in a little Irish brogue uh, because we the kids we would get in trouble and she knew I wasn't in trouble, but I kind of got it started. Mm-hmm. I'm the instigator, and so I've actually embraced that. I didn't know this early on. I thought I could build the business. I'm not good at building the business. I'm good at starting it. And mm-hmm. everybody needs to understand where they are personally in skills. And I had another founder, really smart young man, and he just raised $5 million for this company. And everyone's like, oh my God, you're so successful. You know, raising $5 million isn't a success point. Is it a, a, a milestone? Yeah. Is it an important part? Sure. Now you have to go Spend that five million dollars to turn it into fifty million. How do you do that? That's a different skill than raising five million dollars. Do you see what I'm going? Yeah. That's about scale and it's about, you know, personnel and it's about productizing and about management and and he is smart, smart and I, I saw it happen, I hear see it happen all the time. Oh no, I can learn all that. Mm, well, Yes. And that is a that is a risk that your investors would not want to take. Well, but they invested in me. Yes, they invested in you and the concept and the idea, hoping that you know enough to step out of the way. Mm -hmm. He didn't. He didn't. And they fired him. So here he owns most of the company and they fired him. Remember, I told you that happened to me. Yeah. And, And I watched as he was mad and all these other things, very similar. So I was able to help him through some of that, I think. Uh, he's now started on his new business and he now knows I'm really good at getting it started and I'm going to play a role in the scaling of it, but I need to get other people who really know how to scale it early. So it isn't yeah. somebody's forcing it on me and forcing me out. Instead, yeah. it's I have people part of the team to help scale it. So, how do you do that is usually a different skill set than getting started. And some people are good at it. And the ones mm-hmm. that aren't, you can learn it. 
but you got to remember, you got to learn it while the business is at least having a better shot at succeeding. So you should be learning it from somebody who's brought in. Think of the Google guys. They brought in, uh, they brought in a serious, you know, uh, Schultz, I think his name was. You can look that up as a, uh, who was the CEO and president for a while and then handed the keys back to the, to the young Google guys to run it. Yeah. But they watched how he did what he did and they were like, Oh, good call. Like, no, I totally disagree. Oh, now I see why you're doing that. Not yeah. that he was always right, but he just, he knew how to do it and they yeah. learned how to do it. And then they took back, they took back the company and the, company. the, the full management of it. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, um, how do you manage your finances as a new entrepreneur so that you don't go broke? And like, how, how do you invest, um, and know like which one is the right investment for you so that, you know, you're not spending so much money into your company and it's like not bringing you like rewards? Well, that's a lot of question in there. I don't know if I'm really the best one to answer that. I'm just going to be real serious with you that the idea of finance is, uh, a part of business. It is not what makes the business go or, but it is how it's going to either full out succeed over the long run or, or, um, or fail. So mm -hmm. somebody needs to be in charge of that, but that's not my skill set. I'm not, mm. I usually have other people who are the yeah. operations and finance in any of the ventures that I did that, uh, were even modestly successful. So it's better to outsource, like find the, no, I'm not going to say outsource. Uh, I had somebody that I really, I had a business partner in both cases mm -hmm. that were, that I absolutely totally depended on in mm. that area. And I'm, cause I knew, thankfully I knew pretty early on that I'm not good at that. Yeah. So you, you do feel like, do you feel like you need to like, just before you start a business, it's also important maybe to like know yourself, know what your, what oh, your yeah. strength is and what your weakness is. Totally. Yeah. That yeah. I think is underappreciated and we watch a lot of, you know, bravado entrepreneurs who say, you know, say stuff and act like they know stuff. And so you think, oh, you're supposed to just fake it. No, please don't. <laughs> for your own good and for those around you, especially people who are joining your team and becoming, you know, as you scale it, become part of your, uh, like I look at WeWork and that guy was just, uh, just, a complete mythological being. He he knew nothing about business. Mm -hmm. but he just had charm and he had bravado and he had, uh, you know, looks and all this other nonsense that, that just charmed money out of investors. And then you look at this company and you, it's it, you know, it was a mess. Mm. And it that's it was understandably a mess. This guy was a mess. He didn't know how to run a company. He didn't know how to scale a thing. He had a great idea concept got it started should have stepped out in some ways i think elon musk is that i think he would he'd be better off and tesla would be better off and everyone says oh but look at the stock stock aside like product getting it out the door being on time all those things are the measure of successful repeatable business mm -hmm. and, and you know was it two summers ago he's tweeting that he's sleeping at the plant because he's going to make it happen well if you're a manager of your manufacturing plant is sleeping at the plant they're probably not very good mm. and uh and you know to me it's like elon you're good at starting stuff you've got a gigantic brain for innovation uh get other people to do the operations and get yeah. out of their way and don't 
don't meddle. So, yeah, <laughs> but he becomes a he becomes sort of a legend in his own company. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, what misconceptions do people have about um, entrepreneurs? Oh, tons of them. Um, I think when we think who are the famous entrepreneurs, um, invariably they name a bunch of white men <laughs> and they're techies. And we mm-hmm. don't know the real history is that even some of those ones you're naming are not techie. They, they've just gotten into a tech business. Like the, uh, Airbnb people aren't tech. They were designers, you know, and Steve Jobs wasn't a tech. He was a calligrapher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those kinds of things are part of the mythology. And then we have this sense that, oh, they worked on their own. No, there was teams. Just because the team isn't yelling as loud as they are or mm-hmm. being interviewed for the, you know, for the podcast <laughs> doesn't mean yeah. they weren't, they weren't, uh, like not only critical, but absolutely beyond words critical to the success or the failure of the business. And, um, so I think that it's this mythology that it's mostly men or that you're born to do it. No, it's a learned behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a team and it's usually a team with a culture that's directed early on and it's not about money. It's about making something happen that you just feel needs to be in existence. Money then comes a part of that. Like, uh, it's like the scoreboard is like I had a, it's like playing the game is the game, the sport. The scoreboard is the money, you know, mm-hmm. so you, got to look up at the scoreboard every once in a while but if you're looking at the scoreboard all the time which a lot of people think entrepreneurs do mm-hmm. you're not playing the sport well you're you're probably going to fail yeah um so those would be a couple of ones that i do is that um and the other one is is this adoration in this uh sort of total maniacal focus on the idea it's not the idea it's about a good idea a great team and executing and then just going and doing it. That's, yeah. that's the difference maker. Yeah. But, you know, some people struggle with going in and doing it or while they're there, they're like nervous about their progress or like if they're doing good enough so uh, or well enough. So how do you get over the imposter syndrome? Like how do you bet on yourself? How do you stay focused and not get to like let fear drown you out? When you're we're, we're all imposters. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, we are all like, so just look at them all. And everybody who's a success was an imposter. And when they get past that, they actually, they're less good, I think, because they, they believe their press releases. They believe the, you know, the simple version of their story. Overnight success. I, I've heard this, uh, I've heard this stat that overnight success on average takes six years. And that means on average. So the Instagram guys are three years and they're being bought for a billion dollars by Facebook. So that averages out to ones like other companies that have been around for so long, for 15 or 20 years. And Mm -hmm. then suddenly everybody hears about them and says, oh, man, did you hear about their new company? No, they've been around a while, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. a long time. Uh, The idea that it's uh, it's a slog and it takes a while. And it isn't just about sticking to it. It's about figuring it out and then getting the next step and the next step. And then looking back and saying, oh, look, we did our six years and we're finally having a having our magic moment where everybody sees it's successful. 
Um, yeah. I would say the imposter syndrome is ever present in almost everybody who's successful. Yeah. Uh, and it isn't just get confidence high because I think confidence is um, is overrated. I think it's know that you're good at what you're really good at. Don't delude yourself. Know mm-hmm. you're really, really good at certain things. Get mm-hmm. even better at those. Not shore up the thing you suck at, but mm-hmm. be good. Go from good to great and great to amazing at the thing that you're really pretty good at. And then you're not an imposter. People will say, like you asked me questions about finance. So people will think, oh, he must be pretty good at that. I'm delighted you think that, but I know that <laughs> it's not true. Yeah. Because I, you know, when I'm on the phone with my accountant, I am an imposter. I am telling yeah. him, no, <laughs> I really think we could have claimed that, Jim. And Jim's saying, where are you getting this from? And I might give him an answer and he might go, oh, that's a really good point. And I'm like, yeah, I got it. I got it. (laughs) And I know I'm an imposter and Mm -hmm. that's okay. But I know I'm an imposter. It's when I'm doing those things where I'm really, really, when I'm an instigator, I really feel like that's my, that's my space. I'm Mm -hmm. really good at that. And I like inviting others into it to say, help me do this. Isn't this cool? And mm-hmm. um, and I, the, the people I'm bringing in are the ones who I'm hoping can then expand and scale because mm-hmm. that's what it's going to need if we're right. If I'm instigating into an area where, uh-oh, we were right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to be the one who has to scale it because I know that's when I'm a real imposter. Yeah, yeah. So it's knowing yourself is what I think is the mm-hmm. is the way to – I don't know if it alleviates the imposter syndrome as much as it embraces it. Like, yeah, sure. I'm willing to be an imposter when I'm in the, in the meeting and I'm going to get prepared and I'm going to answer financial questions. But mm-hmm. I know those aren't my answers. Those were Scott yeah. or somebody mm-hmm. who uh, you know prepared the finances. So when should you throw in the towel? That one is so hard. Because think about it. Okay, you are passionate about some problem or some potential solution to a problem. Generally, I always look for a founder who has a unstoppable force um, background. Like you talk to them and they say, you say so why did you create this medical device? Oh, you know, because, they're, you know, three out of four people and they're giving you stats and they know their stuff. And you're like, yeah, but why you? And they'll go, well, because I became familiar with how did you become familiar with it? And they're like, my brother died of this. Okay. Mm. Now I'm looking at a founder who's going to be really, really passionate and will keep going when it gets tough. Okay. Mm-hmm. As an investor or as a, uh, you know, a coach to founders, I love seeing that because mm-hmm. they're going to be really, really passionate. But here's the problem. It's going to be really hard for them to throw in the towel. So how on earth and on a, on a, you know, uh, in the week where John Thompson, best known for the towel over the shoulder, uh, passing away and was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with our Georgetown, the Georgetown coach who was the rival of Syracuse University uh, basketball. Uh, and he when he had that towel, you would think this is the type of person who's ready to physically and metaphorically throw in the towel. But no, he was mm-hmm. hanging on to that towel because at any minute he's going to have to say, look, we're going to rally. I don't know if I'm making making sense with this metaphor, <laughs> but I just think it's a towel. I think of Thompson. 
throwing in the towel is really hard. You mm-hmm. then that's where you actually need your advisors and your mentors to tell you it's time. I'm yeah. working with this one startup. I've been talking to this founder about quitting for about a year and a half. And they keep on going and they're so proud. And I'm proud of them too on some level. But I just, Mm -hmm. I hope I'm wrong, but they need to stop. They're they're really hurting themselves and the thing they care about this venture, I think. And I've had, I've talked with a couple of other uh, advisors to this founder and they have said the same thing. They've been telling the founder to drop this. And it's really hard when you're that passionate and you've worked yourself up into a frenzy and you spend so much time and you put money into it. And it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So when it's really hard to say when, uh, just good like advis- a good advisors will, will tell you mm. you've done everything you could. Yeah. I know personally with mine, uh, it was four years before they let me go and then it went under. I think I knew it two years. Mm. I just didn't, you know, I didn't want to believe it was part of it, uh, but I also I wasn't savvy enough. I was too too close to it to realize that the industry was failing, not not so much my business, but the industry yeah. itself is failing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get into oh no, I can overcome that and hero kind of stuff. And yeah, and that's when I guess it's, it's time. It's really time. <laughs> it's way beyond time, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so how do you manage your business while maintaining your personal life, you know, and how do you stay positive, um, especially during this like COVID and everything? Uh, I'm mostly a positive person. I'm, uh, so I'll answer that one first is, um, I'm an optimist by choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather live the life of being an optimist than the life of being a pessimist just cause mm-hmm. then like that, that, uh, line that somebody said years, years ago to me about, drinking poison and hoping the other person dies being a pessimist is looking out the world and just i mean at times we're all depressed and we're all this is awful what's going on Mm -hmm. and i just can't stay in that too long because that's that's just hurting me it's not changing the situation out there um so i'd rather be an optimist and Mm -hmm. i think it, it creates a power force around you know uh around an opportunity or a new idea or a new way to do something um, and then you were saying, how do I, uh, how do I balance work and life? I don't, mm. uh, I don't. And, uh, I always joke that I'm a workaholic, but actually a uh, workaholic, uh, you know, using that phraseology says that it's bad, mm-hmm. uh, and it can be, but I'm a believer in that nowadays we're more like farmers than we are in industrial business where there was work time and then you know, off time and weekends and all that was created by the industrial revolution, which is really around factory uh, shifts. Mm-hmm. And we don't have factory shifts anymore. We have a global market. We have a 24 seven, you know, communication and distribution channel like the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, business is always on. And I would be working with a client in Europe. That's six hours ahead of me. And then I would be working with a colleague who's in California who's three hours behind me. So what? Do, how mm-hmm. do I do that? The way I believe you do it is you stack it up. Uh, maybe this is a way to end is a sort of a way to keep positive and a way to 
keep balance or some semblance of balance. There, somebody um, years and years ago, an old friend and business partner of mine said that the problem with life is that you spend the first part of your life play when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. And then you go to school and you learn and then you go to a job and you work. Mm. And most of your time is spent in each one of those. And when you're in work, you're looking back to the days when you were loved being in school and learning stuff. And you even love more is when you were a kid and it was play. And mm-hmm. I, and he said, that's linear. And if you stack it up and try to make every day have play and work and learn all the time. And I believe in just mashing them together where the work you're doing is so interesting that you're learning and it's so enthusiastic and that you're working with great people. It feels like you're playing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a better balance than, you know, than having, I work during these hours and then I, I'm in leisure time over here. I just don't think that's, mm, at least yeah. for me, it's not manageable to do it that way. And I think it's sort of going away. I think it's an industrial uh, framework that we don't have anymore. Yeah. So I think it's put play and work and learn into every, every day and I'm try to jam them into every hour. And that's how you win. <laughs> oh, that's, that's kind of been my game. That also helps me stay optimistic. So there we yeah, go. Yeah, definitely. Um, so final thoughts. What, are, what advice would you give for, um, media entrepreneurs? Wow, media entrepreneurs, I think the opportunity right now is there are so many technologies and so many platforms that allow an enormous amount of new kinds of media to take place. So I think we're going to see the opportunity to have a completely new set of who the media owners are. Uh, I have, uh, as I think you know, Glory, that I, I have this initiative to change who owns media. Mm-hmm. Uh, make it more diverse. And I think that is a more sustainable and more effective change agent than uh, a lot of other ways of, of which I'm not against, uh, of increasing diversity and and uh, serving more underserved and underappreciated populations. But the mm-hmm. idea that um, if you own media, media shapes culture. And who owns media shapes what that media is about, what the story is. And I'm, I just want as many people as possible taking, starting a little, you know, a little side business in media, uh, or, uh, starting something that could be big or starting mm-hmm. in a big idea that nobody else has been working on. All of that's possible right now. And, and who takes that on ought to be with stories we haven't heard. So it should yeah, be, exactly. you know. Not a bunch of old white men starting it again. Sorry. Yeah. I'm an old, old white man, so I can say it, right? Yeah. But, yeah, thank you so much for that advice. Thank you so much for being here on the show. Um, really appreciate you, Professor Brannigan. You're easy, you're easy to talk to, Gloria. Oh, and you got to stop with the Professor Brannigan because I'm okay. not a real professor. Sean. Thank, you. <laughs> thank you so much, Sean, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you listeners for tuning into Squeamish, the podcast. Stay tuned for more amazing content. Whether it's serious to lighthearted topics, we've got you covered.